And now, Nurse Talk, where laughter's the best medicine. Brought to you by the California Nurses Association and National Nurses United. Here are your hosts, Casey Hobbs and Shane Mason. When I was new in home care at visiting nurses, went out with a brand new home care aide and I was a brand new nurse and we go out in the avenues to this woman and we're going to give her a bed bath and so we he knocks on the door and we go in and he introduces himself and says we're here to give her the bed bath and you know she was ambulatory which was a little bit surprising I should have should have been a tip off for me but I should have copped on (laughs) I should have copped on exactly right and we get in there and the woman has to find the basin and find the pan so we give her the whole bed bath and at the end he says to her okay so now I'd like to see your blue folder so I can do some charting and she said blue folder what blue folder and he goes well uh, Mrs. Smith uh, you know we're here from visiting nurses and she goes oh Mrs. Smith I'm not Mrs. Smith she lives next door Oh, Christ, Casey. (laughs) (laughs) So a total stranger let us come into her house, strip down nude, lay in a bed, get a bed bath. So we get outside of the outside of the house, and I said to this guy, "This is between you and I. That was a major, major screw up, and I'm not telling anybody. You're not telling anybody. We had to go next door and give Mrs. Smith her bed bath." Splish splash! I was taking a bath. Long about a Saturday night. Welcome to Nurse Talk, where laughter is the best medicine. I'm Casey Hobbs, sitting here by myself today. Wah wah wah. Shane is away, but will be back with us in full swing next week. And by back with us in full swing, I mean he'll just be sitting here. We have a great show today. A little later, I'm going to be introducing veteran Bay Area reporter Jeannie Lynch. Jeannie, who is much more sophisticated than Shane and I, will be doing healthcare reporting for Nurse Talk, and we feel so very fortunate to have her join us. And you won't want to miss her report as she visits with Stephen J. Russell, MD, PhD. Dr. Russell is an assistant professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School and Massachusetts General Hospital Diabetes Research Center. He's really not all that, but they just wanted me to have to say all of that. He'll be talking about the recent bionic pancreas trials that are showing great promise. Bionic pancreas. Did you ever think we'd get there? I'm surprised. And trouble in River City. Headlines. Kaiser still avoiding talks with RNs as nurses outline widespread patient care concerns. With Kaiser Permanente registered nurses stepping up their alarm about the erosion of patient care standards, Kaiser's, Kaiser officials Thursday once again failed to attend a planning collective bargaining session with RN nurse negotiators. Err, we must be so scary to them. I didn't think we were so scary. Oh, it makes me feel powerful. And late word yesterday was that Kaiser has asked a federal mediator to step in and jumpstart the contract talks with California Nurses Association. Kaiser RN's Kimber Wooten and Diane McClure will be with us a little later in the show to, po- to talk about this contentious situation. Ugh. Kaiser is really afraid. I'm so surprised by that. I didn't think nurses were very scary. But maybe when you speak truth to power, it can be a little frightening. I do believe we have a phone call. Hey, Nurse Talk, how you doing? It's Dennis, first-time caller, long-time listener. How you doing? I'm doing great. How are you doing, Dennis? Hey, really good. Listen, you know, I, I just want to, uh, I thought it was something that maybe you could chime in on. You know, I, I partied a lot back in the day. I mean, I'm talking 
man, I, I had a great time back in the 70s and 80s going to a lot of indoor band performances. Okay. I mean, Winterland, the Fillmore, the Elks Club down in South City, you know, and big thing back in the 80s was to use fog machines to fill up the stage. I do you remember. kind of remember that? I do remember that. Well, you know, they filled up most of the places I was in, whether it was a little dive, big concert, but man, this fog stuff would just, you know, billow out and completely fill the place. And I'm wondering, now I have COPD, I'm in my 50s, do you think those fog machines could have been a factor with my COPD? Hmm. Well, Dennis, first I want to say thank you for the call. Uh, first time, hmm, not so sure. And I appreciate you listening, but your call is kind of sort of out of the blue, but I'll try to answer the question anyway. First, I want to explain COPD. Chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, nothing to be taken lightly, that's for sure. It's a condition that makes it hard to breathe and worsens over time. Cigarette smoke is the leading cause of COPD. Long-term exposure to other lung irritants, such as air pollution or chemical fumes, I suppose that would mean that fog machine, may also, and here's the key word, Dennis, contribute to COPD. So I've never heard of somebody, now maybe if you were the person who set up the fog machine and went bar to bar and breathed in the fog machine for three or four hours, maybe. But something tells me, Dennis, that you weren't that kind of guy who was setting up the fog machine. But maybe, who knows? Oh, cool. It wasn't all the pot I was smoking. (laughs) Well, you failed to mention that part earlier. Actually, it's interesting that you bring that up because what I've heard is that marijuana actually prevents you from getting lung cancer. Now, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, that's a whole other topic. So with formal talks in abeyance, Kaiser RNs have outlined sweeping patient care issues presented in communications with Kaiser managers emphasizing Kaiser's model of care fails our patients. Boy, I've been seeing that firsthand. This may sound like it's for nurses, but it affects everybody because for all of us who are insured, and now there's 30 million more insured since Obamacare, uh, you'll want to stay tuned for this. It's important. You're listening to Nurse Talk, where laughter is the best medicine. Stay with us, please. On the next episode of Recipes for Disaster. So we've got our neighbor Paul coming over tonight for a barbecue, which is why I prepared a delicious lemon rosemary steak marinade for my special collection of old family recipes. To make sure the steaks are extra, extra, extra tender, I left them marinating out on the counter overnight, just like Nana used to. Maria may mean well, but without food safety, it never ends well. Always thaw or marinate foods in the refrigerator at 40 degrees Fahrenheit or below. Or you could make your friends and family really sick. Maria's neighbor Paul didn't think twice about the steak he ate until he was presenting his company's financial forecast to the board. That's when a sudden bout of food poisoning made it explicitly clear that profits weren't the only thing on the rise. Watch Recipes for Disaster at foodsafety.gov. You'll learn the right steps as Maria does everything wrong. Brought to you by the USDA, HHS, and the Ad Council. Dear John, I was hoping it wouldn't come to this, but you've left me no choice. I'm leaving. Uncontrolled high blood pressure is really serious, and lately you seem to really not care. I've been there for you since day one, and I know you think I'm going to keep ticking. But no, my friend, I can quit whenever I want. Why can't we get back to the good times, when we were more active and ate more healthy foods, and you checked on me every once in a while? Is that too much to ask? I don't want to leave, but unless you stop ignoring me, what else am I supposed to do? Remember, when I quit, 
you quit. Sincerely, your heart. Listen to your heart. Don't let it quit on you. Doing the minimum to control your high blood pressure isn't doing enough. High blood pressure can lead to a stroke, heart attack, or death. Get your blood pressure to a healthy range before it's too late. Find out how at heart.org slash blood pressure. Check. Change. Control. A message from the American Heart Association, the American Stroke Association, and the Ad Council. Good morning, Ms. Johnson. How are you feeling? Awful. Terrific. I think we could discharge you today. You mean send me home? We need this bed. Here's your keys. Where's my nurse? Gosh, we let most of our registered nurses go. Bottom lines are more important than IV lines, we always say. I'm sure your family can provide you with the very best care at home. My throat is burning. Lozenge? I have shooting pains in both my arms. Probably these IVs. Here, let me help you get those out. How did you get in here? Are you some kind of doctor? Heavens no, Miss Johnson. I'm Ted from Billing Services. I think I'm going to throw up. Yeah, we get a lot of that in the billing department. It'll pass. Get my nurse in here now! Nurse! Don't let hospitals and health insurers put their profits above your care and safety. When it matters most, insist on a registered nurse. Registered nurses put the care in health care. A message from National Nurses United, the voice of America's registered nurses. I've always wanted to be a nurse. In between, do I want to be a doctor or a nurse? And for me, the nursing was the part where they got to spend the most time with the patient. That was something I wanted to do. I wanted to be a caregiver. I wanted to make a difference in people's lives. When it comes to changing people's lives, I think that some of the things we do do touch and change people's lives forever. We are asking for what is right. Are we going to win? Yes! We actually want you all to take out your phones right now. We want you to take a minute right now, and we want him to get the message from the nurses that we are here for our patients. We're ready to bargain. Since you refuse to bargain in good faith, we are coming to your office to present our opening presentation. We want justice for our patients. What? We are the nurses, too. On the first scheduled day of bargaining with the California Nurses Association, representatives of Kaiser Permanente left the nurses in the lurch. But the nurses were undeterred. Instead, they marched to Kaiser to let the hospital corporation know that nurses are there for their patients. But where, oh where, is Kaiser? 
RNs and nurse practitioners detailed a long list of concerns and examples of Kaiser's dedication to profits over patients. Standing in the lobby of Kaiser's corporate headquarters in Oakland, nurses repeated after each speaker, we are the 18,000 RNs and NPs working hard every day as patient advocates. We are not okay with this model of care. Our patients deserve better. Among the issues detailed were patients left too long on gurneys in emergency rooms. I can attest to that. Understaffing in labor and delivery departments, unit closures that send elderly far away from their homes, and delay and denial of care. So what's going on? Well, this isn't the first time CNA and Kaiser have had tough negotiations. In 1997 and 98, the headlines told the story of a powerful Kaiser organization that attempted to silence RNs, cut patient protections, compromise safety by cutting staff, and cut critical services to the communities served. Here with us today are Kaiser RNs, Kimber Wooten and Diane McClure. Welcome, Kimber and Diane. Before we start, tell us how long you've been nurses and what specialty and why you became nurses. Hope you can remember all those together. So this is Diane McClure. I um, have been with Kaiser Permanente for 21 years. Wow. I've been a nurse for 25 years. Um, and I work in the recovery room at Kaiser South Sacramento. Wow, great. Okay, and Kimber, what about you? Hi, um, I'm Kimber. I've been a nurse for 10 years. I've worked in ICU and perioperative. I'm currently a perioperative nurse in San Rafael Kaiser. That's great. So, uh, Kimber, have you spent all of your nursing career at Kaiser? I have. I started as a new graduate in 2003. And, Diane, it sounds as if you worked a short time elsewhere outside of Kaiser. Is that true? Yes. I worked at, uh, in the ICU at a couple of um, non-Kaiser facilities for about four years before I came on with Kaiser. Okay. So I'm just going to ask a question that's not here on my list. But have the two of you, because, um, Kimber, you've been there about 10 years and Diane about 20 have you seen a difference in the way care is delivered at Kaiser over the years? Absolutely. Um, Kaiser has really um, forced us to work with much less staff. Um, we've had to hurry up. There's been um, a lot of technology that's been added over the years, um, and we really don't have as much time as we used to have. We've got a lot, of, a lot more highly specialized equipment that we have to deal with. Um, the patients are sicker, um, and they're, they're putting them in lower levels of care, um, whereas they used to maybe admit patients into the ICU. Now they're putting them um, on medical surgical units where um, it's more difficult for the, the nurses to take care of the patient. Yes. Now, you know, I don't want to be too adversarial here, but I, I will say this is affecting hospitals all over the country, not just the Kaiser Corporation. And I see these changes. I've been in this business for over 37 years, and I see these changes straight across the board. So although we are talking about Kaiser today, I want the listening public to be aware this is uh, what all hospitals, especially hospital corporations, and let's be real, almost all hospitals are owned by a corporation now. Uh, this is what we're all going through, and these cuts they do for everybody. So now let's focus on, on uh, this issue at hand. Why is Kaiser avoiding meeting with the California nurses? I believe that they um, are choosing not to confront the issue of understaffing 
um, and our patient care um, concerns. I think that a lot of what nurses feel very passionate about are the issues surrounding our working conditions, which are directly related to how patients are being treated in the hospital. I believe that there is a, um, a, a lack of acknowledgement and a lack of um, responsiveness from management, and I believe that it is um, folding into the talks that we're having with our initial proposal being around patient care. I, I think that they're actually um, afraid to address the issue, the issues at hand. Yeah, I, I would probably agree with you there. So they've asked for a federal mediator to uh, jumpstart the contract negotiations. Is this unusual, this early in the game? This is highly unusual. Um, when you open up a contract for bargaining, you always have to um, let a mediator know that you're doing that. Um, but there's no need for a mediator to get involved unless things are not going along well, and that would be well into negotiations way at the end. Um, the mediator didn't even realize that we had, when, when, they contact, when he contacted us, uh, CNA, he didn't even realize we already had a bargaining session already scheduled at a set meeting room that Kaiser had agreed to and set up their, themselves. Um, so he was quite surprised when we told him, you know, there is no problem. We, we have a meeting room to, to go to to meet with Kaiser. Interesting. So, Kimber and Diane, there's a document the nurses read at Kaiser headquarters in Oakland. Here are some of the issues presented. In the ER, patients who used to be admitted for monitoring are now being discharged and sent home to follow up in a clinic, even when it could lead to harm for the patients. Two, many patients are held for 23 hours in the ER rather than admitted when they need hospital care. Number three, more patients are suffering as they lay on gurneys for hours in hallways while waiting for proper hospital beds. Gurneys are often not wide enough, leaving patients, especially the elderly, feeling unsafe on them. Patients in the hospital are many times placed in the wrong area for, for care, for example, housed in a general med surge unit when they required intensive care. Many patients are downgraded prematurely before they are medically ready. Kaiser prefers a lower level of staffed care rather than units where patients are more closely monitored. More patients are being held in outpatient observation status even when in a hospital bed. Failure to categorize patients as admitted can lead the patients to having to pay for more in out to pay for more in out-of-pocket costs if transferred to a nursing home. Labor and delivery units are chronically understaffed. Pregnant women are often forced to wait in other units while there are not enough RNs to help deliver their babies. In surgical departments, Kaiser's model prioritizes speed over safety, even occasionally leading to retained foreign objects and wrong site surgeries. Oof, incredibly painful. So the current contract for nurses expires at the end of this month. Is that correct? Yes. Okay, so what needs to happen to get the negotiations back on track? We, we just want to start <laughs> negotiating. We, we want things to be transparent. We want the nurses to be there to see what's going on in the negotiations, and Kaiser would rather um, really separate the negotiating team from the nurses. And this, the nurses need to see what's going on. These are serious patient care concerns, and we want to solve these things. We just need Kaiser to just come to the table with us. We are, we're prepared, we're ready, we've had our opening um, presentation all ready to go, and we just want to get going with these negotiations. 
So for our listeners and viewers who are not nurses who are, or who don't work in healthcare but will one day p- be patients who need care, what, will you, what would you say to them, ladies? What would we say to uh, patients that are um, in search of care? Well, what would you say to people? So this show goes out to people who are not nurses. So to those folks who aren't nurses, why should they care about this? I, I believe that this issue is just central to to every person in this country at the moment. This is a central issue. We're standing up and we're fighting and advocating for patients. So we are advocating for the public. Mm-hmm. Uh, our, my request is that the public supports us in this endeavor. Um, I believe that if we can stop the erosion in patient care with the support of the public, and they, they need to become um, educated and aware that advocacy also has to come from, from the patients and the patient's families and to uh, question when you think that you're not receiving appropriate care in the, in the medical system mm-hmm. and learning how we can all work together to improve the care that's being delivered in this country. I would agree with you. So how can, how can the general public, if people are interested and want to get involved, how can they get involved to help you? The patients, um, they need to know that they, um, they deserve to have proper care. Mm-hmm. They pay a lot of money for premiums, and they deserve, they deserve better than what Kaiser's offering them. And they actually need to, to speak up and let Kaiser know and, and stick together with the nurses who are their, are their advocates and work together with them so that mm-hmm. they, they know that they deserve to have whatever care that might be in whatever setting that might be, from the outpatient setting to the inpatient setting, but to actually they have the right to basic human health care. Yeah, so the, you bring up a very good point. So if you're a Kaiser member out there and you're in support of these nurses who are fighting for uh, a contract and really fighting for your rights, um, maybe it would be behoove you to call membership services at Kaiser and just voice your concerns about uh, the current health care situation and that you want to support nurses in getting a fair contract. Do you think that would help? I do. I think email, phone calls, uh, Facebook, you know, all of the social media outlets we have, and even for um, listeners who have, you know, don't access social media, writing letters is a very powerful um, um, action that they can do to support us in, um, in this fight, because I believe that, you know, especially people that have been hospitalized or who have had to access care, and they've had problems or had bad outcomes, I think that right now is a really um, good time for them to start speaking up about these issues in a, in a larger way and sharing them. Um, because when, when we're all silent about something, you know, the elephant in the room, it, it, it allows these corporations to gain more power over the public. You're so right about that. So I want to thank both of you for your years of service as a nurse, but also for your years of service as advocates, patient advocates, and that's what you're doing when you're fighting for your contract. So thank you, ladies. We appreciate your time. We've been talking with RNs Diane McClure and Kimber Wooten. For more information about this topic, visit calnurses.org or nnu.org. To watch the full interview, go to nursetalksite.com 
We'll be right back with healthcare reporter Jeannie Lynch and Dr. Stephen Russell, who is in the process of creating the bionic pancreas. He's doing trials at Boston University. You won't want to miss Jeannie's report. You're listening to Nurse Talk, where laughter is the best medicine. We'll be right back. Yeah, you, it's me, your heart. Listen to me. We've got to talk. High blood pressure is serious, and yours? Whoa, what happened to us? We used to be so much more active. But lately, you've been ignoring me. I know you think I'm just going to keep ticking away forever, but you're wrong. You can do so much more to control your high blood pressure. Doing the minimum isn't doing enough. I'm under a lot of pressure and can quit whenever I want. Bet you didn't know that. But I like my job. Just treat me better. Check on me. Give me something green to nibble on every once in a while. And maybe we can do some exercise on occasion. Let's get to it. After all, we're in this together. Listen to your heart. Don't let it quit on you. High blood pressure can lead to a stroke, heart attack, or death. Get your blood pressure to a healthy range before it's too late. Find out how at heart.org slash blood pressure. Check change control. A message from the American Heart Association, the American Stroke Association, and the Ad Council. When dad needed help getting around, I became his driver. Any daughter would do the same. But soon enough, he needed help doing more things. And it was up to me to be his personal shopper and financial manager, too. And before I knew it, dad moved in with me. So I became his cook his personal assistant, his physical therapist, and even his nurse. When I started taking care of Dad, I didn't realize all the roles I'd have to play. But no matter what, I know I'm still his daughter. We understand the many roles you play. And to help, we created an online caregiving resource center. At aarp.org caregiving, you can find resources and connect with the caregiving community. Together, we can better care for ourselves and the ones we love. Visit aarp.org caregiving to learn more. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. I banged my head really hard. It was scary. We were having a baby, but it wasn't going well. I had a heart attack. My husband was in the hospital. I was afraid he was going to die. This really nice lady kept telling me I'd be okay. Our baby was turning blue. I couldn't breathe. I thought I was a goner. Our nurse was there before we knew it. We were panicking. She wasn't. And today, we have a beautiful baby girl. Without my nurse, I wouldn't be here talking to you right now. Our nurse helped my husband, and she comforted me when I felt the most alone in my life. I did get better. Nurses are superheroes. Hello, I'm Deborah Berger, a registered nurse from National Nurses United. In the hospital, your nurse is your first line of protection and your last line of defense. Don't let hospitals deny you the care you need. Insist on a registered nurse. It's our registered nurses who put the care in healthcare. A message from National Nurses United, the voice of America's registered nurses. Welcome back to Nurse Talk, where laughter is the best medicine. On the Health Watch tonight, a local father's act of love could one day prove to be a lifesaver for people all over the world. Paula Eben shows us the device an Acton man created to help his son with diabetes. It looks like any other summer camp, but Camp Joslin is for kids with type 1 diabetes. Yeah, 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 yeah. 
And this year, the Charlton campers are also part of an experiment that many say will forever change the way diabetics manage their disease. We're highly motivated. 32 kids are testing a bionic pancreas, the brainchild of Ed Damiano. The biomedical engineer teamed up with colleagues at Boston University and Mass General Hospital. Ed is a motivated scientist, but he's also a father. His son David was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes as a baby. And it's probably the single greatest concern a parent has is not only taking care of their kid at night, but how, the, how their kid's going to do that when they're on their own. For more than a decade, it's been Ed's only goal to build a device that would not only track David's blood sugar levels while he slept, but manage them as well, all in time for David to go to college. It takes over the day-to-day -day, um, challenges of managing blood sugars. Checking the blood sugar isn't the hard part. The hard part is figuring out what to do with that information. A mistake can prove fatal. For kids, uh, running low in the middle of the night is the most common cause of death. That's where the bionic pancreas comes in. Using a continuous glucose monitor, blood sugar levels are checked every five minutes. That information is transmitted to uh, a special iPhone app. That app figures out if the user needs a shot of insulin to lower blood sugar levels or glucagon to raise it. Then the bionic pancreas delivers it through an injection site. And it also provides a level of safety that's really unprecedented. David is impressed by his dad's determination. I don't think many people would be able to do that, to be so dedicated to this. When David heads off to college in four years, he very well could be packing his own bionic pancreas to take with him. Paula Eben, WBZ News. Welcome back to Nurse Talk. I'm Casey Hobbs, flying solo today, but not for long. Veteran Bay Area reporter Jeannie Lynch is in the studio with us today. We're so pleased to have her with us. We mentioned earlier that Jeannie will be doing special edition healthcare reports for Nurse Talk. She has been in the Bay Area broadcasting reporter and producer for over 25 years. She is currently the South Bay reporter for KGO Radio. She has won numerous awards, including honors from the Radio and Television News Directors Association. Before working on radio, Jeannie worked for KRON-TV as their overnight anchor and public affairs director for KNTV. She has produced many independent documentaries on a variety of topics. Welcome, Jeannie, and please take it away. Well, we're talking about a disease that affects 10% of all Americans. This is diabetes, of which there are two types, type 1 and type 2. Now, about 1 million Americans have type 1 diabetes. And while a cure for type 1 diabetes is still far from sight, there is a big hope now with new research using what's called a bionic pancreas. Now, the goal is to live free of pinpricks, manual insulin injections, and keeping up with unpredictable blood sugar changes that result from things like daily activity and what you eat. Now, to better understand how this wearable device works. We have with us Dr. Stephen Russell, who is at Massachusetts General Hospital, and he is one of the primary investigators on this project. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Russell. Thank you for having me. So tell us, first of all, what is the bionic pancreas and how does it work? The bionic pancreas is an automatic device that checks the blood glucose every five minutes, 288 times a day, and gives either insulin to bring the blood glucose down or glucagon to bring the blood glucose up. And 
by checking very frequently and having the ability to both raise and lower the blood glucose, it can respond to many challenges of blood sugar control and, and do a much better job of controlling the blood sugar than people are able to do with the tools they have available now. So it releases insulin and glucagon into the blood, is that correct? Yes. Yeah, so the way it measures uh, the glucose is with a continuous glucose monitor, a little sensor that goes in just about half a centimeter into the skin, and it's constantly measuring the sugar in the fluid between the cells of the skin. It sends that information to a computer that does calculations based on the blood sugar and how much insulin is on board, and it makes decisions about giving either insulin or glucagon, and they're given by regular insulin pumps into infusion sets, again, that go just uh, less than a centimeter into the skin, and from there, the insulin or glucagon is absorbed into the blood. Now, there's several parts to this bionic pancreas, correct? There are four or five parts to it? Describe the parts very briefly. So there's the continuous glucose monitor, and that uh, has a little sensor, a little wire coated with uh, enzymes that can be used to sense glucose, and that is inserted into the skin and gets connected to a little transmitter, and that transmitter sends signals by radio frequency to, at this moment, to a, a, a receiver, and the, the continuous glucose monitor, including the sensor, the transmitter, and the receiver, is currently commercially available. It's called the Dexcom G4 Platinum, and people with type 1 diabetes can use it to help monitor their own blood sugar. But they have to, of course, make all the decisions about what to do with that information. In our case, we have it connected to an iPhone, which acts as a portable computer. It runs a, an app that incorporates the mathematics that determine how much insulin or glucagon should be given. And then it talks to two pumps using Bluetooth technology, the same kind of technology that, for instance, you use to connect an earpiece to your mobile phone. But in this case, it's taking information from the phone about how much insulin or glucagon to give. It's sending it out to two pumps. Right now we're using pumps from a company called Tandem. They're the Tandem T-Slim pumps and they have Bluetooth connectivity, and then they pump the insulin or glucagon through these thin catheters that go to infusion sets, little tubes that just end uh, about a centimeter under the surface of the skin. And so this whole loop of sensing the glucose, giving it to the iPhone app, making decisions, sending the information to the pump, the pump's delivering the drug, that happens every five minutes and it's continually updating the, uh, the glucose information and therefore continually making new decisions about how much of the drugs to give. Steve Jobs would have been very proud of his iPhone. <laughs> you know, we're using the iPhone right now because it's a small, portable computer and because it has the wireless technology we need. But ultimately, we're going to integrate all of these components to a single device that will have two pump chambers, so it will give both insulin and glucagon from two different pump chambers. It will have the receiver for the continuous glucose monitor, and it will have the, the uh, mathematics on a chip that's resident in this device, and a screen and a, a user interface so that people can um, interact with the device. All that will be in a single device about the size of a current insulin pump, 
So it's, it's going to be not much larger than the current insulin pump, but it's going to do so much more for patients. And so this is a wearable device? A wearable device. It's something you would drop in your pocket or uh, use on a belt clip, something like that, yes. Now let's distinguish what kind of diabetics could use the bionic pancreas. Well, so far we've only tested it in people with type 1 diabetes. Those are the people who have the most trouble controlling their blood sugar and who have the biggest swings and are most at risk for dangerous low blood sugars. But we also think it could be very useful for people with type 2 diabetes who have reached the point of progression of their diabetes so that they have to have the same kind of insulin dosing that people with type 1 have. That is a basal insulin that, that lasts all day long and then taking a shot for every meal or every time they eat something. And for those people, we think the bionic pancreas would probably be a very good choice as well, and we have plans to test that in the future. Let's talk about the pros and cons of using this device. Start briefly with the pros, if you would. Well, the pros would be that uh, it, in our studies to date, we've shown that it controls the blood glucose much better than people are able to do with the tools that they currently have available. We've compared it to people using insulin pumps, and um, many of them, almost half of them, were using their own continuous glucose monitor to provide additional information, but they had to be the smarts. There was no computer telling them what to do, and, and they had to make uh, intermittent decisions about how much insulin to take or whether they had to take sugar to treat low blood sugars. The bionic pancreas does all of that automatically, and so it lowers the average blood glucose, in fact, everybody on the bionic pancreas was able to get an average blood glucose that met the target set by the American Diabetes Association for prevention of complications. And at the same time, it significantly reduces the risk of low blood sugars, hypoglycemia. So that's a, that's a big plus right there, better blood glucose control. Um, the next thing, of course, is that it's able to make all these adjustments 24 hours around the clock. It's always watching, always vigilant, even when people are asleep or not paying attention, and that can really reduce the worry associated with going to bed and not knowing whether you're going to wake up low or, or even have a severe low blood sugar leading to a seizure or some serious consequence overnight when, when you can't mind your own blood sugar values. And then the final real pro is that having diabetes is a lot of work, uh, in particular for people who have to take these complicated insulin dosing regimens. And the system lifts all that load off their shoulders. It automatically takes care of all those adjustments. And you can get even a little better control if you tell it when you eat, when you eat and, and roughly the size of the meal. But you wouldn't have to count carbohydrates like people with diabetes do now, where they have to count carbs to the gram. You just say, you know, this is a typical size meal for me, or this is a more than typical size meal for me. And then the system learns over time what that means for you, and it knows how much insulin to give. Is it fair to assume that this device could lead to a cure for type 1 diabetes? You know, I wouldn't call it a cure. I would just call it a very, very good treatment. Uh, the way I look at it, you know, I guess there's sort of levels of cure. It's really more of a, a continuum. Some people might feel that if they're able to wear a device and it takes the worry away and they get very good blood glucose control, um, that that's a cure, I, I think that would be stretching it a bit because you still have to change the batteries on this thing. You still have to uh, check the blood glucose 
once or twice a day to calibrate it. You have to fill the insulin and glucagon reservoirs. So I would really say that this is a, an excellent treatment. A cure would really be something that, you know, you, uh, that would change the immune attack that destroys the ability to make insulin. Um, and I think, unfortunately, we're probably kind of a long way from that. But in the meantime, this could provide really excellent blood glucose control, and it could prevent all those complications that people with diabetes fear, the eye problems that can lead to blindness, the kidney problems that can lead to kidney failure, the nerve problems that can lead to foot ulcers and amputations. I think that this could prevent all of those things. Um, and I think it's also the important thing that you've emphasized is it really takes away the, the day-to-day burden of the management of, of diabetes off the shoulders of the patients because it's a 24-7 disease. Absolutely. I, I wonder how, how much more some, some of the uh, you know, brilliant people with type 1 diabetes could have accomplished if they didn't have to spend so much of their time just staying alive protecting themselves from, from diabetes. Many people say it feels like having another job or at least another half-time job, just managing their blood sugar. And when it's high, they don't feel well and they're not as productive. When it's low, they have to interrupt whatever they're doing to treat the lows. It's really a very large amount of work and uh, just a constant, uh, constant thing that people are having to think about and deal with in the midst of everything else they're trying to accomplish. And I think it's important, too, to emphasize, at least you should emphasize this, that diabetes can kill. It absolutely can. Uh, in the long run, of course, it can kill because of these complications. Uh, once you get kidney failure, the, uh, that dramatically increases your risk of death. But it can also kill in the short run. Uh, you know, a, a bad low blood sugar when you're driving or a bad low blood sugar at night can kill. The, the risk of dying with when you're an adolescent, uh, the risk of dying if you have type 1 diabetes is double that for adolescents who don't have diabetes. And there's this horrible syndrome called dead-in-bed syndrome, which is just what it sounds like. A parent will put their child to bed at night and come back in the morning and find them dead because they had a severe low blood sugar and had um, severe seizures and they didn't survive the night. And almost every parent with a kid who has diabetes tells you they never sleep the same again. Most of them get up at least once or twice a night to check the blood sugars. It really is a, a tremendous burden of worry that, that uh, people with the disease and their loved ones carry. Let, let's wind up this interesting conversation by talking about the status of this device and how soon we will find it on the market. Well, we have been pushing forward uh, very quickly, I think. We've, we've uh, accomplished a lot in a fairly short amount of time. We went from inpatient studies just a couple of years ago to now publishing our first outpatient studies recently in the New England Journal of Medicine. And we've now begun uh, true home use studies where we send the device home with uh, volunteers and we don't see them again for 11 days. So these have all been done with this initial device I described to you, the one with all the different parts that communicate wirelessly. Right now, we're trying to raise money and build a, the fully integrated device, and we hope that we will have that done by uh, the middle of next year and that we will be able to then plan our pivotal trials, the trials that are necessary to get approval by the FDA, 
and execute those trials in 2016 and give the data from those trials to the Food and Drug Administration. And, you know, how long it takes them to make a decision, we don't know. But if we say it takes them a year, then we could have this on the market as early as 2017. That would be, that would be the absolute earliest date, and a lot of things would have to go right, but that's what we're pushing for. And final and very important question, the cost of this device. Well, that hasn't been determined yet. I think it will inevitably be a little bit more expensive than current insulin-based pumps because it's a lot more uh, complicated. It'll have two, two insulin pumps. It'll have the continuous glucose monitor built into it. It'll have all the, um, the control algorithm, and there will be the need to have uh, continuous glucose monitor sensors on a regular basis and both insulin and glucagon. Uh, but I, I can't tell you exactly how much it'll be. We hope it won't be too much more than the current cost of treatment. And uh, we think that that uh, uh, a slight increase in price could certainly be well justified by reducing or eliminating the complications, which are the real high cost of caring for people with diabetes. Okay, thank you, Dr. Stephen Russell. He's an endocrinologist at Massachusetts General Hospital, and we have been talking about the bionic pancreas. We'll be right back with healthcare trivia and email questions. You're listening to Nurse Talk, where laughter really is the best medicine. When I grow up, I want to be a new pair of blue jeans. When I grow up, I want to be a kid's first computer. When I grow up, I want to be a glass countertop in a new home. When I grow up, I want to be a kid's best birthday present. When I grow up, I want to be a football stadium. When I grow up, I want to be a warm place on a cold day. When I grow up, I want to be a fancy backsplash. I want to be a bike that races around the country. When I grow up, I want to be a bench on a forest trail. I want to be a rocking chair on when a sunny I up, porch. I want to be a skyscraper. I want to be a... 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 When I grow up, I don't want to be a piece of garbage. And if you recycle me, I won't be. Give your garbage another life. Recycle. Learn how at IWantToBeRecycled.org. A public service advertisement brought to you by Keep America Beautiful and the Ad Council. Can you tell if this burger contains bacteria that could cause kidney failure? Listen. Can't, can you? You can't see it either. There's only one way to tell if you've cooked meat and poultry to a bacteria-killing temperature. Use a food thermometer. It's not an extra step or a nice to have. Raw or undercooked meat may contain bacteria that can make you very sick or worse. One in six Americans will get sick from food poisoning this year, and roughly 3,000 will die. But you can keep your family safer by using a food thermometer every time. Learn more about this and other important information. Check your steps at foodsafety.gov. That's foodsafety.gov. A public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Agriculture, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and the Ad Council. We are nurses, so we cannot diagnose, prescribe, or treat. But listen to us anyway, because we like to talk. (laughs) Welcome back to Nurse Talk, where laughter is the best medicine.
All materials relating to health trivia are the sole responsibility of Nurse Talk LLC and are not affiliated with any network or stream service airing our program. Wow. What was that? God, was that you? I, ha- I-, I hope I haven't done anything to offend you. I'm just going to move right along because I'm not sure who or what that was. But health trivia question for this week is, if you have Addisonian crisis, what is your condition? And I don't think that's related to God. If you know the answer to this week's question, or you're the first to look it up and email or call us, you'll win a $25 gift certificate to Starbucks. Email to contest at nursetalksite.com or call us at 1-800-977-1863. Our question last week was, what are common heart attack symptoms presented by women? Now, what's listed here is sweating, pressure, nausea, jaw pain. Believe it or not, these are all the symptoms of, uh, that a woman would get if she has a heart attack. Other ones are fatigue. That's a big one. Fatigue, shortness of breath. And as you can see, these symptoms are so mild that so many women just don't pay attention. And then the sad news is if they go into the emergency room, oftentimes they don't pay attention either because they think it's female trouble. So when you have these symptoms, especially if you have hypertension, high blood pressure, I want you to take these symptoms seriously. And if you go into an emergency room and they're not taking you seriously, I want you to demand, demand to see another doctor and tell him you're concerned that you have maybe had a heart attack and that they should do some blood work because the blood work's going to tell them if that's true or not. And I can't say enough, sadly, in our business, we still really aren't that good with treating women, much as I hate to say it. So now we have some email questions. Dear nurses, my sister who is 69 recently had an eye exam during her regular checkup and her doctor said she had 70-20 vision. Hmm. The doctor asked her if she could see very well, and my sister said, now that you mention it, no. She was supposed to go to the eye doctor, but she says she doesn't think she needs to. Hmm. I'm thinking she does because vision seems to have gone downhill in a hurry. What could this be? Just poor eyesight? Does she need glasses or something else such as glaucoma or cataracts? Thanks. Love your show. Amy D. Lorraine, Ohio, listening on Indiana Talks. First, thanks for listening. Love that. Second, yes, she needs to go to the doctor. And yes, she needs to be seen because she could possibly just need glasses. Or your second guess might be true too. It could be glaucoma. So glaucoma is easy to check for and it can damage the optic nerve. The optic nerve supplies visual information to the brain from the eyes. Glaucoma is usually, but not always, the result of abnormally high pressure inside the eye. And no, you don't have to have high blood pressure to have glaucoma, although because the two don't often don't always go together. Over time, the increased pressure can erode the optic nerve tissue, which may lead to vision loss or even blindness. If caught early, though and this could be early in your sister's case, it may lead to, it may be possible to prevent additional vision loss. The, good, the goal of glaucoma treatment is to reduce the interocular pressure so that it can halt any additional eyesight loss. 
and it's pretty easy. All you have to do is go and be tested, and then there's drops that you take every day, and that will decrease the pressure in your eye, and you're not going to lose any more vision. So by all means, go. Now, I've, I've just got to stop here and say, um, because I see so many people every day who minimize their symptoms. We're really good at this in this country, minimizing symptoms. Your body is an incredible machine. It really is. And if you would just listen to it, it tries to tell you when it's in trouble. So when it has a pain or an ache or it does something different than it normally does, please pay attention and go see a health practitioner. Because nine times out of 10, if you go when you first have symptoms, whatever it is can be treated pretty easily and effectively. And that would be my uh, big tip for today. The other thing with eyes that it could be is macular degeneration. Macular degeneration is a common painless eye condition in which the central portion of the retina deteriorates and does not function adequately. So that's if you can imagine, if you put your fist up in front of your eye, you can see everything around the fist, but not your central vision. So if you see big spots in your field of vision, that's another key time to go see the doctor. Most of this stuff can be treated, but you have to go. So signs of macular degeneration I just talked about. There's both dry and wet forms of macular degeneration, and the ophthalmologist will be able to um, discover that and treat it. So by all means, go have those things looked at switching gears and not to be naysayers, but the next time you go to the hospital, God forbid, make sure you have an accountant or a financial advisor in your back pocket because you're going to need some help figuring out that bill. That's for sure. Everyone knows hospital bills are out of control, but the bills often produce sticker shock because of hidden costs. Charges patients have no idea are coming. Of course, rarely does someone know exactly how much an operation or a hospital stay will cost at the outset. But even in the most predictable of situations, hospital costs vary greatly and mistakes often occur. How often? According to the Medical Billing Advocates of America, a national association that reviews medical bills for consumers, 80% of hospital bills contain errors. So that's kind of on purpose a mistake, you know, and most people, I wonder if you even read your bill. No, I, I wonder if it's don't. as complicated yeah, as the telephone bill where you can never figure out right, what the right, heck right, it right. is. So here's five hidden costs uh, of hospital visits. So what to look out for. Number one is facility fees. So you may pity the administrator who has to explain this one. Uh, facility fees, sometimes referred to as a provider-based billing, can occur after a hospital buys a doctor's practice. Uh, so if you get a medical test, uh, you may get charged a facility fee that can easily cost hundreds of dollars. And what are you paying for? Basically the hospital's extra overhead. So this is something that you probably won't be able to negotiate after a procedure, but you may be able to avoid it if you discover this charge beforehand. So ask him, do you charge a facility fee? And sometimes you can get that cost down or eliminated. Or like the person that you were talking about, you knew a gentleman yeah. who actually ahead of time, he was having elective surgery, went place to place, found out what the cost is, which is hard to do. You got to be aggressive. Yes. They're not going to, if you ask right. them, they're going to say, well, I, I don't, what, right. what, what? That's not my area. But he was persistent and he got several quotes from people and then went in and said, well, Joe Schmo over here yep. can do it for this amount. Can you do it for, and that is a smart consumer. So it was going to cost him like $30,000 and yeah. eventually he paid like $4,500 for the surgery. See, and, and. He died a week later. But... <laughs> <laughs> well, that's only because he had a computer instead <laughs> right. of a nurse at his bedside. <laughs> but double billing. Sometimes doctors perform two or more procedures during the same surgery and bill you as if you went into surgery two or more times, which I just love that little thing. Right. There are also news reports of physicians coming into rooms and looking at a chart and then billing the patient for it. And sadly, I've seen that happen. 
even when there is another doctor already overseeing and billing the patient. At some hospitals, you may be checked out by someone lower on the totem pole than the doctor who is never less around to supervise. And, you know, that bothers me because that lower on the totem pole usually means it's a nurse. Mm-hmm. And do we see the money for that in that particular mm-hmm. bill? Nope. Our salaries don't go right, up because right. they build more for it or they build us at a rate the doctors get instead of what the nurses right. get. Yeah. So the third one is an overcharge, which is exactly what it sounds like. It's basically where a hospital charges you more than is the going rate in that area. Uh, and most people don't have a good sense of what they should pay when they're sick. And that makes sense. But you can get a better idea about how much your medical procedure costs uh, on the Fair Health website. Uh, so you can go to fairhealth.com or just Fair Health and Google. And specifically, they have a consumer cost lookup tool that's going to give you an average rate for what something costs in your area. You can also go to Healthcare Blue Book. There's a number of sites that uh, are out there, but you want to make sure that they're not overcharging you. And if you can negotiate that ahead of time or even afterwards, if you're well enough or have an advocate with you that can do that. And some of the other things they may overcharge you for is brand name medicines when a generic was available. So be smart when they're giving you medications and ask. I'll never forget uh, gosh, this has been a long time ago. I took somebody to the ER. Um, she was having um, a particularly bad menstrual period, but then was sick on top of that and was kind of out of it and eyes rolling in her head and not making much sense. Took her into the emergency room. After many hours, they didn't really do anything because they said, okay, we can't do a vaginal exam because she's bleeding and so it wouldn't work. And they gave her two Tylenol and the bill for the two Tylenol was $900, <laughs> literally $900. And that's all that happened while I was in that emergency room. And I wished I had been smarter and a better consumer at the time. After it was done, there was not much I could say about it other than I right, can't right. pay you. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, so there's rogue fees. Uh <laughs> Sounds I love serious. this rope. Like they just come in and they're brandishing <laughs> swords. And so patients will sometimes discover charges for rogue items like gloves, which that should be part of the operating operating room fee. But they'll, but they'll put it on there. Yeah. Band-aids, gloves, you know, Kleenex, whatever. You might get billed for a toothbrush or a comb. Uh, and though that should be included as part of your stay and not billed extra. But you do. It really does behoove you to go over the bill. And, and argue the bill because they do have to take that stuff off if you find it and it wasn't accurate. Um, you know, but too many of us don't do that. And I think yeah, that's why they get to do that. I didn't use that Kleenex. What are you talking about, buddy? <laughs> I did not use that Kleenex. I blew my nose on the hospital gown. Now, come on. I wasn't going to pay for the Kleenex. That's what dirty socks are for. <laughs> that's right. If you're charged for the time you spent in the room of the, on the day you were discharged, most insurance plans won't allow that, but they may go ahead and put that on your bill. So check it out. You might have some luck arguing that like a hotel, a hospital shouldn't bill you for the several hours you spent there that morning. Uh, of course, the hotel analogy, the checkout time is 11 a.m. or noon, um, but I don't think the hospitals hold that mm-hmm. to be true. Um, so you you really got to look into this because this is a way that they gouge patients every day. Yep. And not to mention, you know, what we heard last week in the classroom for nursing was that the... Um, Healthcare has gone up for hospitals by 2%, but they've chosen to pass that on to the consumers at a 16% right. rate. It's quite outrageous. Yep. So watch out for these five hidden costs. Take care of yourself. Make sure you've got an advocate. Negotiate ahead of time when possible. And good luck. So now I'm going to close up the show. I want to say a special thank you to all of our friends out there for listening. Special thanks to National Nurses United. And a thank you to our executive producer, Patty Lockard. 
Daria Karpova in post-production, Dennis Cruz, couldn't do it without Dennis Cruz, and the team at TalkStream Network, Taylor Lockard, Social Networking and Progressive Voices Tune In, and all of our wonderful broadcast partners. Remember, to laugh, you got to listen. To listen, you got to tune in. Come back next week because you know I love to talk. Have a good week. Thanks for listening to Nurse Talk, where laughter is the best medicine. Brought to you by National Nurses United. Check us out on Facebook or go to our website at nursetalksite.com. For more information about National Nurses United and the California Nurses Association, visit nationalnursesunited.org. Until next week, remember, laughter is the best medicine.